If there's one phrase that sums up the physical therapy profession, that phrase would be, it depends. Welcome to the Tales from the Plant podcast, where we will explore the notorious it depends phrase through interesting and in-depth interviews with physical therapists from all types of practice. Join us for inspiration, laughs, and tips and tricks in starting and improving your clinical practice. Welcome Welcome to to Tales Tales from from the Plant podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Tales from the Plinth. Today, Ben, Liz, and I are with Ashley Greenthainer. Ashley, say hi. Hi. Um, so, Ashley, tell us a little bit about yourself. We'll just start off like that. Pretty easy. Okay. Um, I graduated from Youngstown State University, not Gannon University, <laughs> in 2014. Um, right now, I'm at Hammett Hospital. I'm a, a cardiopulmonary physical therapist, but I mostly work in the ICUs. So critical care is, is where I find my, my passion, but, um, I'm up for anything. So ask away. So was that like your, your go-to interest in PT when you were in school too? Cause I feel like we hear a lot of stories of people wanting to be outpatient orthophysical therapists, like from the beginning. And then they change like their, like their heart halfway through. Yeah. So funny story. I thought I would never work in acute care. I wanted to be an outpatient orthotherapist like everybody else that starts. I feel like Um, I actually did my clinical so that my shortest clinical, which was only four weeks, was my acute care clinical. And uh, my CI actually had another student at the time. So it was like not even a real great learning experience. Not his fault, but I mean, he had another student and I was only there for four weeks. So Um, but I did work in outpatient for a while. I was a float therapist in the Pittsburgh area after school. And I just, even though I was seeing a wide variety of patients and treating in a wide variety of ways, because I was covering for other therapists, I was just finding myself getting so bored. (laughs) I just felt like, um, I mean, we tend to, we try to do patient centered care, but like, it's hard not to see a back injury as a back injury and a shoulder injury as a shoulder injury and that sort of thing. So um, when I moved where my husband was after he graduated, I, I tried acute care and the rest has been history. <laughs> um, I never thought that I'd end up in the ICU because it's so daunting, but um, once I was there, well, cause they make you rotate everywhere. So once I was there, I realized I didn't want to leave. <laughs> so how long were you like working before you became the, like an, an acute care therapist? Um, I was only out of school probably two years actually, because I did I did the whole nursing home thing at first um, because everyone sees those dollar signs after college. I'm not gonna lie, nursing homes pay much better than hospitals in most places. And I did I did love um, nursing home therapy, but then I moved in, just life moved us around. So I was taking what was open to be honest. And the outpatient ortho clinics around Pittsburgh needed float therapists to cover for people's vacations and since I didn't really have a home in the area in a sense that I knew a bunch of people to network with or anything like that. I just took the opportunities as they came and I learned a lot doing that and I wouldn't have traded that for the world, but uh, being in the acute care setting, I don't think I could see myself anywhere else now. For sure. Yeah. Good thing it was only two years there too, because (laughs) I've noticed at least like with my current CI, like the longer you're in a setting, the more specialized you get and it's just harder to make that switch. Yes, for sure. So when you first became an acute care therapist, were you kind of working in different like ICUs or different settings like that as well? 
Yeah, actually, I started at Shadyside Hospital in Pittsburgh, which is a probably probably the second biggest hospital next to Presby. They're actually considered one hospital, even though they're not in the same building or in the same borough. But um, there was a lot of oncology at Shadyside because it's attached to the Hillman Cancer Center. So we had to rotate around and I got a lot of, even if people weren't there for uh, cancer related issues that most of them had a comorbidity of cancer of some sort. So I rotated around there. I got neuro, ortho experience. Um, they did stem, stem cell transplants there, a lot of abdominal surgeries and, and neurological uh, surgeries. So I got real familiar with a lot of lines that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. <laughs> which is extremely challenging when you first start. But um, I, I built a huge rapport with the nurses because I, I felt like I didn't, I didn't get a great orientation because I, they were so busy. So I found myself just asking nurses questions left and right. And most of them knew me as the therapist that never stopped asking questions. But I mean, that's how I learned and that's how I still learn. That's something that uh, I'm definitely experiencing right now. I'm in a neuro ICU um, for all our listeners. And so right off the bat, you get thrown into it and they have so many lines that you hear about in these lectures, but you don't look at until you get into the setting and you have to manage them. And oh, it, it was very intimidating at first, but even just second week now, I feel more comfortable. Do you, do you have any tips for me? Um, well, the thing I always tell my students is number one in the ICU is we're not gonna pull anything out. <laughs> And number two is we're always going to leave them better than we found them. Because if you want to gain a nurse's trust, don't leave their patient in a mess. <laughs> but um, as far as managing the lines, though, I, I try to teach my students that if, if you keep everything in front of you and in front of the patient, it's it's better to manage. You can decide which way you need to move things later. But at least at that time, they're all in front of you, you know, on it, as much as possible on the same side of the bed in front of you, in front of the patient. And I always, I always uh, prepare for the best case scenario. I prepare as if we're going to walk and the patient will look at me like, lady, you're crazy. We're just getting to the edge of the bed. Why are you wasting your time? <laughs> but people do better than you think they're gonna do. And you don't wanna be stuck uh, scrambling at the last minute and doing unsafe things because you weren't prepared. So what drew you to kind of the cardiopalm ICU setting? Um, actually, I, I know you said that um, Amanda was your CI, Ben. Um, she got her neurocert. We, we actually both lived in Pittsburgh at the same time, but we moved to Erie separately. And we actually only met once we lived in Erie. Um, but she got her neurocert. And I knew I wanted to stay in acute care. So I was, I was looking into like what would make the most sense. And I've always had a huge interest in cardiopalm anyway. But that cert is one of the most daunting ones because it involves a research project and um, presenting research prior to sitting for the exam. So um, it took me a couple of years to convince myself that it was doable for me. <laughs> but um, once, once I got into it, it really wasn't that bad. Um, but I've, I've always loved cardiopalm stuff. My mom actually was an EKG tech when I was growing up and she'd bring me home the script paper, you know, the old fashioned stuff, not we have it on the computer nowadays, but um, most people would like flip it over my brothers and sisters and color on the back blank side. And I would be the one on the grid side making EKG rhythms, which turned out to just be V-fib. But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I was drawn to it. Maybe it's just because I was exposed to it at such a young age, but. 
That's super cool. I mean, <laughs> like I know a lot of, like personally, I know going into school, there was so much to PT that I didn't even know existed. And one of them yeah. was like this cardio palm specialty, which I think is really cool for people to know that like, it's not just treating orthopedic injuries all the time, you know? Yeah. So, and the patients still look at you too. Like when you say you're the physical therapist and they have a breathing tube, they're like, what? Like, you want me to do jumping jacks or, or exercise? <laughs> so I have to explain even to the patients that there's a difference. Right. Like, I love that. Cause like right now working with Amanda, we see a lot of vestibular patients and patients who have like VOR dysfunction. And they're like, how do you do physical therapy on the eyes? Right. And then they give you this look <laughs> and you're like, all right, like it sounds weird, but like, give me some time. Yeah. But my question is like, so you were two years kind of being an outpatient float. How tough was it to kind of adjust back into acute care mode after being an outpatient for a couple of years? Cause I know it's kind of like night and day really. It really was. Um, and like I said, they they were so busy at the time that I was, I started that I, I mean, they, they did give me an orientation, but I feel like, especially when you're so two years is still pretty fresh out of PT school. So I just kind of had to, I had to not be afraid to ask questions. I had to, um, find my mentors anywhere I could. Um, I did have great PT mentors there that would answer any questions I had. I just had to not be afraid to ask them. And, um, like, the nurses, the doctors, you know, just, you have to realize your weaknesses as well as your strengths. Like, don't be afraid to admit that you have room to grow in certain areas and that you're never going to know it all. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a definitely a different mindset, but it was also kind of cool to see where your patients came from, you know, cause most of the patients that walk into an outpatient clinic have at some point been in the hospital or, you know, to a doctor or an ER. Um, so it was not an easy adjustment, but we got, we got there. <laughs> what about the adjustment in schedule? Because I know one of the biggest things that I've noticed is from my last outpatient ortho rotation to this one, I was like, we're only seeing like six people a day, we'll say in the acute care setting, but we saw double digits in outpatient, you know, can you, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, I actually prefer the hours in acute care because you're, you know, you have it's, it's more, um, I don't want to say normal, but it's, it's not like you're not working till nine o'clock at night and then going in at 10 o'clock in the morning, some nights. So, um, but as far as patients go, yeah, we see far less patients, but I feel like it gives us more, um, more time to I would get to know our patients. They tell us things that they wouldn't normally tell people, even though they should be telling their doctor some of these things, I'm not going to lie. Um, but, and it, and it also involves the time that we're digging into their chart too, because I like to solve puzzle, like I'm a puzzle person. So seeing something on a screen and applying it to the patient laying in the bed, I, I just, I like that extra time that I have with my patients, the one-on-one -on -one time. An outpatient, you do have a lot of time with your patients, but I feel like it's almost split, like running back and forth between people. Whereas in acute care, you have to be focused on that patient at that time, one patient. And I That's tell my patients all the time because they're like, oh, I know you have so many patients to see. I'm like, but when I'm here, you're my only patient. So that's what I like about it. They can't even expect me to see two at one time. 
Yep. Yeah, that's like, so Ben and I have these kind of conversations all the time about what we, what, what we want our careers to look like when we're, you know, fully graduated and full functioning PTs. And I didn't expect acute care to look like how it is right now for me. I mean, I was the sports ortho guy, like thinking about doing a residency in sports and stuff like that. And I got into this rotation. I fell in love with it. I literally tell my CI, I can't wait to get into work the next day because the hours are better. The patient care is exactly what I like ideal, like for me as a PT student, like it's 45 minutes, one-on-one, just diving into them, treating them, repositioning, like whatever you have to do. So I don't know, I'm a big fan of it. And so, you know, I know Ben might not have an opportunity to do a rotation, but for any of our listeners who are thinking about acute care, I highly recommend doing a rotation in that setting. Yeah, I I tell my students, like, I know that a lot of, a lot of PT students want to go into ortho or outpatient or sports medicine. And, and that's completely fine. But I think that doing an acute care rotation is beneficial no matter what, because you can see, like I said, where your patients came from, it gives you an appreciation for what they may have went through, what their families have gone through. And it will also um, keep things in the back of your mind as a, a diagnostician, especially if you get direct access, because Somebody might come into you, you know, with a total knee replacement, but if they're having shortness of breath or feeling faint, like you have to be able to differentially diagnose these patients. And I think acute care is a really great way to get a base for that. So how do you um, get your patients to buy into what you're doing with them? Because like you said, you know, if they've just had a heart attack and they say physical therapy walk through the door, like how do they respond to that and how do you get them to buy into what you're doing with them? Well, in most cases, in, in my, in the ICU that I work in, my patients are relieved actually because they want to move. They want to get out of that bed that they have been in for two weeks straight. Well, by the time I walk into the door. Um, however, there are those patients, especially the extremely anxious patients that know exactly what's going on in the sense that they know that they are attached to all of these very important things that are keeping them alive. So it's just, it's all about building a rapport, you know, taking time to slow down and, and realize that this may be your job, but this patient is terrified. And I, what would I want the therapist or the person that's trying to convince me to sit up to say to me? Um, so I really do. I introduce myself tell them exactly what what an acute care physical therapist or an ICU physical therapist does, that it's not the same as the physical therapist that they're used to thinking about and exactly what our goals will be. And the more you can include the patient's goals in your goal, the more they'll buy into it. So, you know, do they want to hug their wife or husband or family member that's in the room? I can convince them like, let's just sit up. Let's just see how you feel, you know, what what their goal is and helping work towards that goal will help them to buy in. It's all about it, like it really is about taking your time to not just saying like I'm actually in the physical therapist. We're gonna get over to that chair. <laughs> like that's not how that's not a great way to make uh, build rapport with your patient. I also think like not to continue to answer the question, but I also think that physical therapy just looks entirely different in the acute care setting. It's more focused on function and functional strengthening and ambulation and balance and stuff like that, or endurance in you know, your case, whereas in like a traditional outpatient setting, it's, it's let's do shoulder external rotation 20 times with the green TheraBand and then move on to this, that, and the other thing. And so I think 
that's been one of the most appealing factors because you kind of boil it down to really essential things that PTs are, are good at. Absolutely, I definitely agree. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, and I was telling Ben too, that's been stressful for me is not only the lines, but what's in the lines. Like, you know, it's been something that I've actually had to do some research on outside of clinical, like the different IV drips that they have or things like that. How did you go about navigating that? Was it just time spent on the computer Googling? Yeah, that's exactly like, so I would write things down, <laughs> even if, even if I didn't need to know at that moment, I would, if I, if somebody said a word to me, like a drug I've never heard of, I would just jot it down and either look it up later or ask somebody because everybody was always, I mean, everyone I've ever worked with, there's only a couple of people that I, that were more unapproachable than others, but um, even they like wouldn't have cared if I would have asked them. It's just, you feel more comfortable asking certain people, but yeah, it's, it's never a bad thing. You're always learning and drugs are always changing too. So you're never going to know it all, but yeah. And if you don't ask, or if you don't look it up, you're never going to know. And even if it doesn't apply to us, it's kind of, it's definitely a good thing to know, like what isn't, is not important to what we're doing. Yeah. I need to review those, uh, word endings a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's a good way to start too, because you may not know exactly what it is, but at least you'll know, like it's a beta blocker or it's a calcium channel blocker or it's a presser. (laughs) Like, do I need to watch their pressure every second? (laughs) Ooh, that's a good question I have for you. So we've been having an interesting circumstance um, with some of the uh, attending physicians at university hospitals where like some are like super tolerable of us working with patients on pressors and then others are like, don't do it. Where does, uh, where you were kind of following that and like, how have you managed that? So when I first started at the hospital, we did not actually go in. I mean, we would round in the ICUs and then we would just get so busy that we would conveniently forget to go back to them. But I, I would realize like I had to convince people that, you know, the nurses, yeah, the nurses are going to get irritated if they have to take time out of their day to talk to you, knowing full well, you aren't coming back. So just let me go back. Let me try to see these patients. Like, so um, it's kind of all started that way. But we also got a great critical care um, physician that came in and started to build a really great program full of physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and other physicians that really um, are very evidence-based. And I'm very fortunate to work in a place with evidence-based physicians that put such, um, they put such faith in that system. So in the ICU, I don't know if you've heard about the ACDF bundle, but, you definitely, you should definitely look it up, but especially for where you're practicing. But um, one of the huge, like it, it goes into medication, sedation, ventilation, all of this stuff. But one of the huge parts of it is the E, early mobility. So they value us in the sense that we are part of that evidence-based bundle that they know works. So our physicians, thankfully, um, they don't just say, oh, they're on pressors, don't work with them. But that's where I come in in the sense that I need to know what's safe. Like how much are they on? Is it safe for me to sit them edge of bed? Is it safe for me to get them out of bed? Um, how long have they been on this stuff? And things like that. But, um, and at first it takes a little while for them to buy into it. But once they can really see the benefits that you can, you can make with their patients, then they'll be coming to you and asking you to do things. I mean, 
any, like sometimes you get asked to do things that aren't safe. Like just because we could doesn't mean we should. <laughs> so um, we've, I, I've been very fortunate in the sense that the physicians that I work with um, value um, early mobility and, and physical therapy. Um, but it does take a while to get get to that place. So don't don't get discouraged. But the more they see what you can do and see what you can do safely, the more they're going to start saying like, when you're not there, like, oh, where, where, where are they at? Why is my patient still in bed? <laughs> yeah, I think that just speaks to our role in advocating for, you know, what we do with patients and our role in the healthcare system, because it is so important. Um, in every aspect of healthcare. And I mean, I've seen a need for it in um, the clinic I'm in too. And I mean, it's, I feel like we're always gonna have to advocate for our role, but there's the evidence to back it. So, <laughs> um, but what I wanna ask or kind of lead into, how has your um, job or like position looked like or even changed with COVID-19? So with COVID-19, I haven't been in the ICU as much as I normally would be because, um, and I've noticed this just from reading the journals and, and things too, that they have found <laughs> that the critical care therapists are the most equipped without extra training to actually start seeing some of these really sick folks, um, which is a, you know, it's a compliment to us that they trust us to do that, but it kind of, and for me, it's fine because I do the cardiopulmonary, like I love the pulmonary patients as well. Um, but it has shifted up me more out of the ICU, us more out of the critical care and into the COVID units. And we do have COVID ICUs too. However, those patients are so, 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 so sick that it's like, few and far between that you can even work with. So we are more in the, the step down or um, intermediate units with the COVID patients, but they are sicker even than some of the, like the ICU patients that I'm used to seeing. Um, another thing is with just the whole climate of healthcare and acute care. And I don't know if you've noticed this, David, where you're at, but they're having a really hard time getting people out of the hospital and into rehab facilities even if they don't have COVID-19 because they're so worried about bringing it into the facility or their beds are already so full with, with um, patients that they can't accept more. So we're rehabbing people in the hospital to go home when we're not a rehab facility. So it's really stressing our resources for our acute patients because there is nowhere to take these sick individuals when they leave the hospital. Yeah, we've had several patients um, who have been put into beds in the, uh, in the neuro in intensive care unit when uh, they're actually from other ICUs or from step down units and stuff like that, just because beds need to be available. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. And it's interesting though, because I have convinced actually a couple, uh, they've been discharging straight from the ICU in some cases because there's no step down beds. So we're doing things in the ICU that I wouldn't normally be doing unless I was on the floor. Um, like, taking patients to stairwells, like who in the ICU can walk to a stairwell and do a flight of stairs, but you have to remember the patient's not actually an ICU patient. They're just in the ICU. No, yeah, totally. I mean, we've had in, in the neuro one that I work in, and I'm, I'm honestly looking forward just to looking at the other ICUs too, because my CI is technically a float ICU 
just covering a maternity leave in the neuro one. So I'll have the opportunity to look at other ones. But what I was going to say was um, we've had patients who are highly functional, you know, like even though they had a stroke, they're recovering well. And we do all sorts of stuff with them, stairs, walking on the hallways. And then other ones, we just sit at your bed. I mean, it, it is interesting, the array that you see. Something that I thought just to comment on was like, I was sitting there thinking just how like it's the little, I think, indirect effect that COVID has had on the healthcare kind of world that people don't see. I mean, everyone appreciates, you know, nurses and physicians right now for working that hard. But like, I mean, I, I didn't even know that rehab facilities were so full that people couldn't go there. So it's like, it's these indirect kind of effects that I think COVID is going to have long-term that people kind of aren't aware of right now. And Ashley, do you think like, do you think long-term like PT profession post COVID during this, however long COVID lasts, do you think as a whole COVID is going to change a lot of what like all PTs do? I do because even if somebody comes to you for something else, even in an outpatient setting, a lot of them are going to have a, co a comorbidity from, you know, either having COVID or, um, I mean, even in a lot of therapists are going to be treating people in their homes because they're too afraid to go to an outpatient center or they're too sick to go. Um, but I do think, you know, even when polio was, was a huge thing afterwards, they had to deal with the post polio. And I really do think that we're going to end up dealing with a lot of post COVID folks, even the ones that I've seen that were very healthy prior to COVID have a lot of, um, lingering, uh, side effects, if you will, if that's what you want to call them of, of it. And I, I think one of the most, I don't know, it's, it's kind of scary, um, to deal with some, some of the folks that are in the ICU or just came out of the ICU with COVID, they've actually been diagnosed with like PTSD from, you know, being tied to a bed on a ventilator, unable to breathe in isolation for so long. It's, it's really, it's really heartbreaking to see, but I think we're going to be dealing not only in the PT profession, but just in general with a lot of things that are going to linger around after all of this is I don't even know if I'm going to say it's ever going to be done, but if it is, <laughs> I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of the, the lasting effects of, of what's happened these last couple of years. Yeah, that's super scary. Like I could see, obviously, psychologically, like you mentioned, but what are some of the like kind of maybe chronic physical side effects that people are starting to come down with post-COVID? Um, well, I'm, we've all heard of like the lasting fatigue and the decreased en endurance and things like that. Um, I don't know because I'm not a medical doctor if, if the, you know, the blood clotting effects and things like that are going to be part of it. But we have seen just, you know, subjectively, I've seen a lot of people that have had COVID come back in with other, other things. And it makes you wonder if someday research is gonna show us if any of these things were correlated as far as like DVTs and blood clots and strokes and things like that. Or if it was just because of the age at which they were at when they got COVID, if it was something that would have inevitably happened. But I think a lot of, um, a lot of research still needs to be done for sure. But I think as physical therapists, we're gonna be dealing with the lingering fatigue, weakness, um, poor endurance, um, their 
ability to take air in and exchange gas, things like that. Um, but also dealing with the whole human aspect of things, the psychological toll it took on them. Um, we're gonna have to be very sensitive to that too and what they've been through, even if it was a family member that went through it and not them in particular, but. So I know COVID is a pulmonary disease, but because it hadn't shown up before two years ago, what was it like kind of learning how to treat this new disease that came into the scene? Um, it was a lot of trial and error and um, having coworkers and colleagues that were also experiencing at the same time, we'd have to bounce ideas off of each other a lot and say, you know, like this just happened to me today. Has that ever happened to you? And, um, you know, even talking to people that work in, in different areas, if it's, if things like that have happened to them. But one of the biggest things that I had to come to terms with was that people were going to desaturate very, very easily to levels I have never seen in a functioning person before, and then take a long time to recover. And that no matter how much or little you are expecting it, you just have to remain calm for them. And then you know, do whatever is, is right to do after that, whether it be give them a break and keep going or let their nurse, nurse know and stop um, if they have to be on more oxygen. I've worked uh, a lot more closely with respiratory therapists too, in the sense that we as therapists are not able to prescribe oxygen. So we need like specific orders of what we can and can't do if the patient needs it while we're in there or whether or not we need a nurse or a respiratory therapist to do it. Um, it's very limiting too, in the sense that people that are on the high flow nasal cannulas is like um, OptiFlow, they're actually attached to the wall for their air and there's no way of making them portable unless you have um, a respiratory therapist with you, which are very short right now, um, at least at my hospital, but I think in general, same with the nurses. But um, so the patients really want to do more and sometimes it's really hard to tell them that it's not appropriate to do that right now. That brings up kind of a good question that I wanted to ask. So not only with COVID and how like frightening I could imagine that treating patients like that would be, but how about just transitioning again from like outpatient ortho where you're seeing knee replacements, hip replacements, where it's like, Hey, if I make a mistake here, like, yeah, I'm going to feel bad. Like I'm going to hurt this person, but to the ICU where it's like, if I make a mistake here, this person might die. Like how, how do you come to terms with that? I guess, like, is it just kind of these things where you got to just do it or is it like, how long did that kind of take? I tell people, even if they're not ICU therapists, that if you feel comfortable, like truly comfortable, like you're not nervous at all, when you go to get a patient up in the ICU, you should probably not be in the ICU. I even get nervous going to get, and rightly so, because like you said, if you make a mistake, you could seriously injure or kill somebody. So there is a, a, a small amount of healthy nervousness when you work with patients, but if you're too nervous too, then you're, you're going to be restricting people that could be moving more just because you're afraid. So it does come with experience. You'll get more comfortable as you go. But if, if something that's where it comes down to, you know, really being okay with asking questions, if you're so nervous because you don't know something, you need to find it out before you start moving them or bring somebody with you who has seen it before or has done it before, because the more you do it, with somebody there to mentor you through it, 
eventually you'll be okay doing it on your own. Um, but I do think a, a healthy, a healthy amount of nervousness is, is good in the ICU setting. Um, because you, you really do need to slow down and take your time. Something else that I think, you know, you could draw on experience from is the ability to educate patients and family on the condition that they're experiencing. One of the things that I've noticed is that it's difficult in the acute care setting when you have a patient who's so critically ill and their family members are in their room and you're trying to get them up and moving. How do you go about handling that? As long as they're not going to jeopardize the safety of what I'm trying to do, it's beneficial, like you said, to educate them so they understand. And also they, they kind of need to buy into what you're trying to accomplish as well. Um, but use them, use them to your advantage. If they're a motivating force, use them to help motivate the patient. You know, if, if you know that the patient is motivated by wanting to, to be supportive, in their supportive role with the person that's in the room with them, use that to your advantage. Um, like I said, as long as they're not going to jeopardize the safety, if they are gonna jeopardize the safety, if they're so anxious, they're making the patient anxious or they're touching things they shouldn't be touching, it's, it's always okay to, to you, I mean, you might have to ask them to step out in a polite way or work with the nurse to kind of get them to maybe go get something to eat while you're doing it. Um, but I don't know if you've heard of post-intensive care syndrome. So part of that is actually the family aspect. So it, um, they actually have seen that families also suffer from their loved ones being in the ICUs. Um, so the more you can include them and educate them and maybe even give them a job, like they, sometimes they just want to feel like they're doing something, even if what they're doing isn't super significant to the whole process, it's, it's super significant to them. If you can show them how to passively range them safely or give them a few exercises that they can get them to do, whether it be the incentive spirometer or, or like short arc quads, just something. If you, can, if you can use them to your advantage, use them because they're gonna be there. And, and it's important to their recovery, the patient's recovery too, that their family recovers with them because they're gonna be their support system when they leave. Love that. I did not realize it. And I didn't think about post-intensive care syndrome like that. Like, for example, today I was just talking to a lady whose husband was in our ICU and you could just tell by talking to her, like she cannot believe what he was going through. And I didn't even realize what the therapists were doing, but they were teaching her how to take care of him. It totally matches up with, with like what you just said. Wow. It's crazy how you realize that kind of stuff. Cause like you're a student and you're all like, I'm just going to observe and blah, blah, blah. And then like you go back on it, you're like, oh, that was the purpose of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's, it's some, sometimes even though you're not billing for it, you're treating the family too. <laughs> That's a great if point. You, if you can calm them down and educate them too, then they're going to be a better supportive force when you're not in the room. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's an awesome point, even not being in acute care, but even in like some of the higher level strokes and, you know, spinal cord injury patients that I've seen in just the week and outpatient neuro is like, I've what I've seen a trend that seems to be is like caregivers and family members and rightfully so are very overprotective and overcautious of patients. So, and it's like a lot of the times when we have to say like, hey, you have to let them move and let them struggle. And even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, like having them walk without their walker in the kitchen is going to help them so much long-term. 
And I think a lot of people just don't know that, you know, they think right, like rightfully so they just think safety first. So if I don't have to, if they don't have to walk, I'm not going to make them walk. So I think like you guys were talking about, sometimes it can be like a tough sell. So getting a patient like family member bought in is so huge, I think. So anyway, to wrap, before we wrap up here, we ask all of our guests kind of what their defining moment as a PT is and some kind of lasting advice they give future PTs. So Ashley, if you have something for us, shout it out. I'm glad you warned me about this before we did this because I had to really think about it and it came down to, I don't think that there was one single defining moment, but, but a series of a couple of them. But I remember the, the first the first one that made me realize that I was going to stay in the ICU and be an ICU therapist, that was going to be my calling, was just working with one of my intubated patients in the ICU before I even really knew, to be honest with you, what I was doing. You know, I was just going with the flow, doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing as a ICU therapist, what I was taught to do, um, talking to the patient. We... I think that they kind of let me do therapy with the patient only because they didn't know what else to do for him. <laughs> so um, we were just going along with it. And it turned out not only did we get this guy edge of bed, but we, he was actually standing and I had to convince them that it was okay. And it was safe to let me do more with this man. But um, at the end of that session, somebody, somebody outside the room had heard me speaking to him and actually sent an email to my boss about how um, I was able to get the patient to do these things that they didn't, that were beyond what they thought they would accomplish with the patient. And then I realized, you know, sometimes, especially with the patients that are on ventilators, which a lot of my patients are, um, you have to be their voice. So you really need to stop and listen with more than just your ears too. Um, I've realized since COVID started that I'm actually very good at reading lips, even around ventilator tubes. So the patient's it's a great way of making rapport with the patient. But um, when you achieve something that nobody thought you could do, even yourself and everyone around you, that's really like, I, I knew that's where I needed to be. And then the other one, most recently, this is my most recent one. So right now in healthcare, and I don't know if it's just in the ICU setting, I think everyone's experiencing it to some extent, even the outpatient therapists that are like strapped for resources. Um, but we feel like we're, some days we feel like we're helpless. Like I'm doing all I can, but I don't feel like I'm making a difference. And I had this patient again, failure to wean from the ventilator had been through this awful scenario that should have never happened. It was one of those worst case scenario, like on the consent form, all these things could happen. Yeah, that happened to her, even though it like never happens to anybody. And then after all of that, she was unable to wean from the ventilator and was like borderline ready for a trach. But, um, I convinced them to let me sit her on the side of the bed and she actually participated very well with me. And I was sitting on the bed beside her and the pulmonologist walked down the hall and looked at her and said, take a deep breath. And she took a deep breath on the ventilator. And within an hour after that, she was extubated because she proved to them that not only could she breathe, but she could breathe while moving. And then they felt okay to take her off. So I probably wasn't the one that made her okay to extubate, but I felt like I had a big hand in that and proving to them that she could do it. And um, I think those, those little things are what makes you remember why you're doing what you're doing and that you are making a difference. 
Wow, Ashley, thank you so much for that. I That's amazing. Um, so yeah, that is it, guys. That is Ashley Greenthainer. And if you have the opportunity to go to Gannon for PT school, she will teach you EKGs at some point, which is always <laughs> good fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. This is my first podcast, and it was not as scary as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> oh, you did great. You did great. Thank you, guys. We'll see you.